Welcome to the Deep Change Podcast, where we explore the future of human potential through psychology, brain tech, and pushing the boundaries of neuroplasticity. I'm your host, James Garrett, and today we have the honor of having Dr. Greg Kelly on the show. Dr. Kelly is a naturopathic doctor and the lead product formulator at Neurohacker Collective. His areas of expertise include nootropics, anti-aging and regenerative health, um, and the, chron the chronobiology of performance and health. He, is, he has a broad range of experience, including clinical practice, nutraceutical research and formulation, classroom and online education, medical writing and publication, and corporate wellness. He's the author of the book Shapeshift, was the past editor of the journal Alternative Medicine Review, and has published numerous scientific articles and various, on various aspects of natural medicine and nutrition. But what I love about his work the most is that he's a passionate science communicator and cares deeply about helping the average person understand how, I, how our bodies work best. This is a guy who will spend hours in the lab making sure the supplement formulation is just right and then we'll turn around and spend even more time figuring out how to explain it in simple terms we all can understand. He's thought long and hard about the future of medicine and how we all can live a little longer and a little better. Dr. Kelly, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. My pleasure to be on. What a great intro. It <laughs> made me think that I've done a lot of things. So. <laughs> No, I'm so glad. I'm so glad uh, we have this opportunity. Um, I've been following Neurohacker Collective for some time now, and um, but but really only recently ha have started uh, using the actual supplements myself, and I've had really positive experiences with them. Um, but but for 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 most of our audience, uh, some of them know this word nootropics, you know, mm -hmm. and I I think that's maybe the best place to start. Um, but from your perspective, what are nootropics and how do they fit into the broader um, kind of health, wellness, supplementation space? Sure, sure. So I'll do uh, basically like a quick history of the um, nootropic space, um, nootropic in three minutes, we'll call it. So the, um, the term nootropic was coined by a Romanian researcher. Um, he discovered essentially what are now called racetams, which are, I would think of as almost gray area they're not really drugs in, in the sense they're not approved as drugs mm. and they're not qualified as dietary supplements so they're one of those things that falls into a i guess a regulatory crack but what he noticed with this first racetam paracetam that it improved focus uh, memory mental clarity things like that so what he did is he coined the term nootropic to describe compounds that essentially had positive effects on how the brain worked without negative drawbacks so we know there's, there's medications like Adderall that can help kids with attention deficit to focus more, but there's trade-offs for that. So the idea of nootropics as originally thought of was it any compound that could push things forward without the trade-offs. And as it turns out, there's all kinds of botanicals, so herbal medicines, nutrients, um, particularly amino acids, that tend to have what we would think of as nootropic qualities that would ask, positively impact some aspect of whether we call it focus, attention, arousal, memory. Um, there's, there's a term executive function that has more to do with how we plan and execute tasks over time. 
And so what we've found is that individual ingredients have some of these capabilities, but when you stack things together, then you can amplify those effects, essentially spread out into a lot of different areas. So within the idea of the nootropic community emerged this idea of nootropic stacks. So mm -hmm. essentially layering multiple ingredients together. And Qualia, the product that you've recently tried, would be our premier stack, where we've done lots of iterations, lots of testing on individual people to make sure that we are covering a lot of the cognitive bases for performance and not making trade-offs. So I don't, that's a, like the helicopter well, view of the space. Yeah, I love, you know, for a lot of, I'm just thinking of parents, for example, um, who have, you know, a child with, with ADD or ADHD and, and are on some sort of uh, chemical, um, you know, uh, like like Adderall or something else, and and they do talk to me. They they do worry, right? Of course, naturally, about you know what are the downsides, and so it's fascinating. I didn't know that that there's there's a sort of what are the, what are the chemo, what are the compounds that have upside but very low or very little or even no downside. Yeah, and the other thing with downsides is sometimes downsides a function of dose. So mm -hmm. I would say the single most used nootropic substance in the U.S. not even close second would be coffee things with caffeine um, and what caffeine does it promotes arousal would be the like the key like functional benefit but when we have better arousal that allows us to have more focused attention mm. but if we do too much caffeine then what happens is we still get that arousal but we get too much of it so we start making mistakes mm. we get confident to the point of overconfidence so what, what we see with most things i mean imagine like an upside down you Yep. So yep. at lower doses, we start to climb up, you know, to where the top would be peak performance. But if we take too much of it, we start to slide down the other end. And I know personally, one of my first experiences with a lot of coffee was, um, so my background before all the great things that you um, mentioned was I was an officer in the Navy. Mm. And one of my first experiences was with coffee was I had watched from four till eight in the morning and then had to take uh, exam for the Navy at eight. So I drank a lot of coffee that night. And when I went mm. to write my exam, my hand was trembling. I'd, mm. I'd gone too far into like the arousal and my test score wasn't ideal either. So coffee has a sweet spot for cognitive performance. Caffeine usually for most people, the somewhere between 50 to say 200, 250 milligrams gets us to that peak. Less than that, too much, we start to not maximize the potential of coffee. So what I, what I think of is um, there's certain things that have, by their nature, more of a trade-off, but even things that have a limited trade-off, often it's the dose that we need to optimize, almost like exercise. Yeah, fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah, it reminds me in psychology, there's this curve, the upside down U with stress called the Yerkes-Dodson exactly, yeah. curve. And, and that peak performance, you need a little bit of kind of arousal to kind of zero, you know, focus your, basically telling your brain there's something really important to pay attention to, right? Yeah. Uh, but too much, you, 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 those declines hit pretty hard. Um, Fascinating. So, so tell us, you know, you mentioned these different areas of cognition. You mentioned mm -hmm. executive function, memory. Um, tell us the kind of areas that you guys see as the ones you're trying to target um, and why you're trying to target all of them at the same time. Okay. Yeah. So there's um, really 
neuroscientists would think in terms of there being six cognitive domains. So these are the big bucket areas. So one would be attention. Usually they'll say complex attention. Mm -hmm. One is visual motor skills. Another is memory. A fourth would be executive function. And the last two, one is all of language capabilities. And the, the sixth is um, what I would think of as social cognition. And so those are the, the six main buckets. And typically, um, nootropics do the best in those first four. Mm. So um, attention, memory, executive function, and visual motor processing. And visual motor, we would see things in that, like seeing a visual stim stimuli in reaction time. So something that would be super important as an example for a baseball player. Yep. or uh, most athletes. So those are the, the main areas we focused on. We're starting now to do a bit in the, the uh, what I would call the social bucket to see if we can create eventually um, what my working project name is an empathy stack. Mm. But I mean, there are compounds that seem to make people a bit more altruistic, a bit more prone to see happy faces in the environment as opposed to non-happy faces. And so, you know, to us, that's an interesting project that we're starting to work on. Um, but the, our original stack was geared to, to really um, get attention. Attention's the, the foundation, just like coffee with that arousal piece. Yeah. That's the core thing. Without that, like if you're sleepy, the other stuff's not going to work well. So you'll see caffeine in some form in almost all nootropic stacks. And then once you start to think in terms of visual um, motor skills, then that's where that accuracy piece comes in. Coffee will do a bit on its own, but it's got a narrow window where it works best. But when you stack it with this compound called theanine or theanine, sometimes it's called from green tea, that actually helps to, to give what's often described as a relaxed calm. So it balances out mm -hmm. coffee, right? It's now starts to spread your capacities into other areas that coffee alone doesn't do so great. Um, and then eggs are a great source of this nutrient called choline. The Institute of Medicine thinks roughly four out of five American adults don't get enough of it in their diet. And choline's super important for something you mentioned before we went live, um, which is acetylcholine, mm. one of our big neurotransmitter pathways, and super involved in what I think of as um, the memory, the learning pieces, that and dopamine kind of both work in that. Um, and so when you start to say, like, how do we want to induce better performance across these domains, it starts building stack upon stack. So you'd have a choline or acetylcholine stack. You'd have a dopamine stack. You'd have your arousal stack. You'd have your you know, calm attention, um, calm, calm focused mm -hmm. stack built around theanine. And so when we you know, designed Qualia, that's how we designed it, like mini stacks upon mini stacks. And then the latter part is if you just went super high with caffeine, that's going to give you your most subjective, immediate response. You take 300, 400 milligrams of caffeine, most people are going to feel You'll it. notice it, yeah. Right. Um, and so what you see sometimes with nootropic formulations is they'll do a lot to make people feel something right now, but mm. not so much to improve things slowly over time. And that's mm. where the neuroplasticity, things like brain-derived nootropic factor, things that boost better learning, memory, long, the, the terms are like long-term potentiation, but they're all the, the biochemistry our brain needs to actually make it so it can remember and then pull out memories better. So when we design, we design to make sure we 
give a good immediate, but not at the trade-off of anything long-term, and then build in a long-term stack as part of that. So that's, that's the big picture. Um, I want to get into neuroplasticity, but I do want to ask this question because I've noticed that, that with qualia um, mind, because you have mind and focus, which are two different formulations of qualia, but within mind, you have a caffeine-free and, and one that does have caffeine. With the caffeine-free, are there other elements that are kind of acting as that stimulant or, or arousal piece? No, not in our caffeine-free. Really. There's, there's no... Um, there's nothing that's going to quite work like that. You can kind of sure. indirectly get there with things that, um, for lack of a better word, that would ha have a similar effect. But we really, the idea behind that caffeine-free was a stimulant-free version because the people that wanted no caffeine really wanted no stimulant. So we made it for a relatively narrow audience. And uh, the truth is quite a few people that actually take that take it with coffee. They just wanted to be able to more directly control their coffee, caffeine intake. Interesting. Interesting. Well, and you can also see, you know, one of the biggest reasons we do feel tired, of course, is really lack of sleep or, or poor sleep. Poor sleep. Um, and so if you're dialing in those sleep routines and making sure you're not looking at your phone for 90 minutes before you go to bed and, you know, all the, all the sleep hygiene stuff, um, you can see arousal not being as needed, maybe. Right. Sure. Sure. I mean, we think of um, in my intro, you mentioned chronobiology or performance. So basically, that's just a sciencey way to say that we really care about how the body function changes over the course of the day and night. So circadian rhythms would be the, the, the more, I guess, description of that, but also body clock function. So mm. caffeine early in the day is fairly neutral on our body clock especially when we're habituated to taking it, say, but I take all of my qualia and my coffee, usually between about 6.30 and 9 in the morning. Mm. And that's a fairly safe time to not disrupt sleep at night. Now, if you took crazy high doses of caffeine in the morning, it could still, you know, for sensitive people, still bleed into the night. But now if you shift coffee, like for me, I would think of myself as relatively sensitive to coffee. So I can have coffee anytime pretty much before noon with no impact on my sleep. But even coffee ice cream or coffee yogurt mm. at eight at night is going to disrupt my sleep. And, and the way it plays out for me is I'll typically have no problem falling asleep, but I'll wake up much earlier than I normally need to. Mm. So instead of waking up at, say, 6.30, I'll be wide awake at 4. So that's a great half the for me. day. Yeah, so I can get to sleep fine with a low amount at night, but it, it essentially drags my body clock to wake earlier. And so that, that happens a lot with coffee at night. It, it shifts the timing of the body clock as well as disrupting ability to get into deep sleep. So for me, like I front load caffeine, coffee early in my day, and then I'm essentially caffeine free from mid morning till I go to bed. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I want to get back to timing as well, because I know this is one of your specialties, but let's dive into neuroplasticity, because you, you, you mentioned, um, you mentioned acetyl, I mean, acetylcholine is one of these really interesting things for me in my own reading about the, the you know, kids, for example, are pulsing with, with do, or just, you know, in their brains and naturally produce tons of acetylcholine. And of course, as we get older, that slowly starts to, to diminish. Mm -hmm. And so one of the intriguing things I think about accelerating or, or um, kind of 
helping your brain do what it naturally does, right? Which is to produce this capacity to rewire itself. Another way of saying that is just to learn. That's how learn what learning means. Um, so what 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 are you mentioned again uh, the eggs and things? But what 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 other elements of the stacks that you've built with Qualia are sort of also contributing to neuroplasticity? Okay, um, so if you don't mind, I'll get a little bit nerdy, but we'll go back it. to acetylcholine. I love so when it. I think of a neurotransmitter, there's a couple different big pieces. So we want to be able to build it. So the, and the key thing for that is the substrate. So in this case, getting more choline that can actually get into the brain. Mm. So there's, there's two great forms of that, alpha-GPC and um, acetylcholine, are the, the, the dietary supplement names. So the advantage of those is there's modest doses can get to the brain and start to have an impact. The um, next thing after we build the molecule is we would store it. This is in the, basically the, the space between neurons, the, the synapse they called it. That's where the neurotransmitter is released into. So we store it and then once we release it, that's this, what I think of as the signaling piece, right? Mm -hmm. So that signal then tells the other neurons nearby what to do. So we want to be able to do good bursts of it. And what allows that is cleanup. So once mm -hmm. we release it, the, most of these things just float in that synaptical cleft for a really tiny, tiny amount of time. And then they're almost cleaned up, recycled, and then rebuilt into acetylcholine. So what we want to do is we want to start from the building block, support the enzymes that make it into something that can be stored. And as it turns out, some of the herbal compounds, like bacopa is an example. Mm. Um, ginseng would be another one. They tend to support the making of acetylcholine from these building block compounds you'd get in eggs, as an example. Mm. And then other nutrients tend to work on making the receptors respond better. So part of the signaling part, and then still others help the cleanup and recycling. Mm. So when I think of acetylcholine stack, it should do something for all of those areas. Mm. And each, so, yeah, each, so, each element that it's, it's helping the, the entire process. Right. So when we think of like, we would so often we'll call it full pathway support. Mm. But that would be the, the complex systems approach. Let's look from the beginning to the end of how that, that molecule neurotransmitter in this case, acetylcholine is used and make sure we're supporting the flow through the entire system. And, and, and at this sort of systems thinking, uh, I, I know that, that you and, and, and some of the other founders of Neurohacker Collective are pretty keen on this because, it, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like it's one of the things that really you guys try to differentiate yourselves from others. Uh, tell us more about how you guys think about things as a system in the brain. Sure. So um, one of our founders, Daniel Smachtenberger, is a he came out of a complex science systems think, think tank. So that's his background. Yeah. And, um, and really just for the audience at Bird's eye view of like complexity science is it's really the difference between thinking of an ant and an ant colony mm -hmm. as an example, right? So an ant walking on my desk right now wouldn't be particularly smart. It wouldn't be able to solve much, many problems. Um, but if you put an ant colony somewhere in the neurohacker collective, let's say landscape somewhere, that mm. thing's smart as can be, right? It's going to adapt to all kinds of real world problems, super tough to get rid of, right? So what that's called a super organism in complexity science, because each ant 
is in a sense like a computer node in, a, in the internet, right? It's a one node in a complex adaptive network of things. So the key thing with complexity science is this idea that things learn and adapt. They essentially change the rules of the game as the game is played. That's why it's so hard to get rid of things like, you know, bees, ants. It's also the reason why cancer's tough to um, overcome and why it's hard to lose weight because the network of body fat cells is a complex adaptive system, right? It's a system within our body, but it's a system that's interrelated, right? There's no single fat cell that's, you know, that you can say this one's in charge, mm. but that network of, of fat cells adapts in really challenging ways to overcome. Cancer is the same. So mm. one of the advantages of combating cancer that medicines move towards is realizing that our immune system's also a network and that it's also a complex adaptive system. So improving that on its own can help a lot with cancer. So that's the idea of biologics that's advanced with a lot of the new cancer drugs is rather than trying to just kill and poison cancer cells, which is you know trying to get rid of individual ants, teaching our immune system to do better at getting rid of them works better. And mm. then the brain is one of the most like advanced pieces of networked um, things that we have, right? Because all these neurons are interconnected. So, you know, there's really no single neuron that's in charge of anything. It's the, the units of, and the interactions between them is what gives us our consciousness and our ability to learn and remember. So I would say the key thing when I think of complexity science that I'd like your audience to take away is this idea, and I, I call it the, um, like, life finds a way. So did you ever read the book Jurassic Park or see the original movie? Yeah, I saw the original movie, yeah. Okay, so there's this um, chaos theory scientist, Malcolm, um, Dr. Malcolm is his yeah. name, Jeff Goldblum. Goldberg, but that actor plays him, right? right? And so he's brought into this, you know, essentially dinosaur zoo, and a bunch of the InGen is the name of the people that created the dinosaurs. And they're like, we got it all covered. It's all under control. We've manipulated their DNA, da da da. And he comes in, he's like, this is a disaster waiting to happen. Mm. And so they're essentially looking at the same information, but the complexity science, just which chaos theory is a subset of complex system science was seeing that oh life is going to find a way this we're talking about an ant colony here not a single ant like th these things are going to behave in ways we can't predict right. and what you can predict is life's going to find a way it's going to adapt learn evolve mm. and so when we think of like supporting the brain with nootropics we're always thinking in terms of if we do this how's the system going to learn how's it going to adapt as opposed to just doing this and expecting that if we do high amounts of this, we're going to get this effect. Mm. We figure we're going to get this effect and then some long-term effect. And so one of the core things in both our testing and our recommendations for users is this idea of cycling nootropics. Hmm. So like our base recommendation is you take volume for five days, take two off. And what that does is it spreads adaptation out. So you talked about the Yerkes Dodson law, yeah. which I love, by the way. Yeah. I think that's a really powerful model. Yeah. And one of the ways I would use the Yerkes Dodson law in an adaptation sense is to think of adaptation as that process of going up the curve and then down the other side, right? So mm. in that in that experiment that led to that, it was the quantity, right? The dose that led to going up right if you did too high a dose you plateaued and went down right right and the 
other key function is time. So if we take exercise as an example. If we walk every day for the rest of our life, we're going to pretty much spread out the Yerkes Dodson effect mm. over the course of decades, right? We'll be mm. able to still keep walking when we're 70, 80. But if we run a marathon every week, we're going to crunch the Yerkes Dodson down super small. And probably within a year, we're going to be hard pressed to perform well. So in the supplement world, that, that's, those are the two things from a complex systems approach we think of, the dose and the duration. So when you say hard, hard to um, perform well after a year of running a marathon every week, in, in what sense? We, we, You're going to overtrain, right? You probably get injured, out. you burn, yeah. Like you've, you've, so when I think of in a simple sense that Yerkes um, Dodson as almost an adaptational upside down U, it's an adaptational curve. Yeah. So when you start exercising, if you were sedentary, anything you do from ex an exercise point is going to improve performance for a while. Yeah. But if you keep doing the same thing, we know at some point you're going to plateau. Mm. You're not going to continue to you know, benefit from it. And if you continue to do the same exercise, then you'll eventually overtrain. Performance will start to worsen. And because of that, exercise specialists have people adjust their routines over time, right? do different types of weight training, take time off, all of those things essentially reset that adaptation process. They spread the time component out tremendously. And so what um, I would say in, in a lot of um, the supplement world tends to be more is better. If you know, 100 milligrams of this was great, a gram's gotta be better, right? Mm -hmm. If 100 improved focus, geez, I want more focus than that, I'm gonna do five times as much. But that's not how things work over time. Like maybe in a day that would happen. But if you kept doing that over time, you're going to crush down that curve. Does that make sense? And then, and then the brain will adapt. Right. So you'll need more to get the same effect. But you've also your benefits over time. So what, one of the things that I noticed early on when I was doing research in supplements yeah. is you'd often see a supplement improve something over say four to eight weeks, but by six months, it was back to only working about as well as placebo. So you'd kind of track mm -hmm. through that curve over time. And, the, and from your perspective, this is, this is habituation. This is the brain learning that this new substance, whatever you're introducing to it, uh, is now the new status quo. And so it simply adjusts through neural receptors or other ways, other mechanisms it has to, 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 to reset a new norm. A new Correct. Norm. Like what it will do. So like say um, right now in the anti-aging space, but also um, for brain, you'll see it, um, NAD plus. Yep. So super important molecule. And um, something that we've known how to build, frankly, since the 40s, right? But any vitamin B3, tryptophan, all are things that can boost NAD+. So the, the new thing is that an, a different type of vitamin B3 was discovered. And so that's kind of become the sexy new thing. Um, but what you would see is, so one of the studies on, it's called nicotinamide riboside, is this new um, niacin equivalent for your audience. So one of the human studies, they did two different doses over time. And I love studies where they compare multiple doses. Mm -hmm. Like to me, that's, that's where you start to see adaptation come into play if you're looking for it. So what they found is over four weeks, 
the, the say we'll call it the baseline dose, the low dose mm. boosted NAD about 40%. And the, the higher dose, which was double, if my memory serves me, boosted at 90. So like super cool. I want to do the double dose because like who would settle for 40 when I can right. have 90, right? Of course. Of course. Right. And so, the, but then they kept doing the study and remeasured things at eight weeks. So at that point, the low dose was up to 44%. And my, like, forgive me if my numbers are like slightly off. Yeah, yeah. But the 90 had come down to, I think it was 55. So you'd already seen the, what I would think of as the beginning of that curve, right? You'd hit the peak and now you're coming down. And I think the reason is um, one, we have capability to methylate and eliminate niacin equivalents. So that was like my guess is if they had no measured that they would have seen a big uptick in our capacity to eliminate right like we pushed it so hard our body actually upregulated something else to get rid of some of it mm. right so the the like i would say in this case the lower dose was more like walking and the higher dose was more like running you know maybe not a marathon every week but it kicked in a lot more compensatory mechanisms and my intuition is if that we if that study had continued out to six months, the higher dose might not have actually worked better. Mm. Right. So that's when I when I think of like a complex systems approach, we're always thinking, what can we um, anticipate in terms of the learning and the adaptation based on other mechanisms we know, often based on what's like hinted to in a study like this one. So what that would lead us to say is okay, niacin's great like niacin equivalents, nicotinamide riocide, the older you know, niacin flushing version, niacinamide, the non-flushing. Yep. And that doesn't mean more is better. There's probably like a Goldilocks range where we're going to get that best performance and get that best performance in a more enduring manner. You know, I, I, I think this particular kind of principle that cuts across so many domains is so easy to overlook and so powerful once you grasp it. Mm -hmm. and, and it's easy to forget it, right? I mean, I'm doing, um, you know, I'm in the process this whole year, I'm doing what I call, I'm calling the deep change project. And I'm really trying to fundamentally rewire my own brain and then measure uh, these, in these different areas, right? And one of the things that I've been doing over, over and I'm blocking this out in sort of two month chunks. Okay. Um, so right now, this, this, I'm, in the, I'm in this kind of, time period of, of focus, right? I'm trying to increase my focus and really dial down distraction, which I think for, is, is a real problem for a lot of people. Um, so it just, again, increasing states of flow and, and, and really thinking hard, how do I hack attention and, and really get good at creating habits around that? So anyway, but one, one of the things that I've found, I guess, surprising but also reassuring is that every kind of two months I've been building this kind of set of kind of keystone habits mm -hmm. that, that I lock in and I'm really non-negotiable on in this month uh, so, so my first two months it was really a morning routine you know awesome yeah reading edge reading exercise and meditation um, and then these two months it's really my afternoon routine which is a, so in the morning I do yoga in the afternoon I do something more cardio so it's 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 uh, exercise a 20 minute nap mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and playing guitar, which is something I've always oh, wanted to do. Yeah. So again, it, it takes, it's three 20 minute breaks mm -hmm. in between my kind of sprints, my 90 minute sprints. 
So, so this is a way, you know, one of the things I've, I've thought a lot about is, is the, the way that we work doesn't really work. You know, we, our brain doesn't work good in marathons. It works good in sprints and breaks. For sure. Yep. And it'll so, take them on its own if we don't take it for it. So. That's right. You just find yourself surfing social media <laughs> and you wonder why you're so distracted. It's because your brain's crying, just begging you to take a break. That's actually going to restore it and not yep. just deplete it even more, which attention Yep. rich activities usually deplete the brain more. And so what you need to do is take a break and take a walk in nature, right? Um, but it's been interesting because one of the problems I find is that um, as you create the habits, the real routines around it, they're not glamorous. They're not, you know, exciting. They're not, uh, they, they don't hit you over the head with the, with the outcomes, how, what, how good they make you feel. But cumulatively, you know, I'm wearing my aura ring right now. So, so I've been, you know, watching my heart rate variability and mm. um, my body temperature and my resting heart rate and uh, my breathing rate and a whole host of different factors, uh, how much I'm sleeping and whatever. And I've watched this curve since January. Just, you know, it's not, it's not, a, it's not dramatic, but it is steady. And it just keeps, in, my, my heart rate variability just keeps doing this. And I really, I really do attribute it to um, these kind of core habits that are forcing me to do the daily. It, it, again, I think I'm pushing myself into that sweet spot where I'm not overexerting myself, even though that out of the gate, I want, I kind of want that high outcome. Mm -hmm. It's like if I can stay slow and steady and and be really steady about it, the the cumulative outcome is just. Ama amazing and brains are hard have, we have a hard time seeing that yeah um i mean this was something i noticed in practice both you know, when i was in practice but coaching other doctors as well is patients would would often tell you oh give me the whole plan right now like i want to mm. i'm gonna like change everything this month yeah. but yeah. um that like we only have i like the metaphor of a willpower reservoir whether that's true or not but mm -hmm. it seems in the real world we do like in the course of a day, course of any short period of time, we've got a finite amount to draw on. And if we try to change too much too quickly, we just run that dry. And then all of a sudden we like go off the rails. All of, all of the good things we started all of a sudden just slide off where if we do things more modestly, more incrementally, then we often get to keep those things. Cause the way mm. I think of it is a habit like brushing our teeth, has become a ritual for most people it would take more willpower not to brush their teeth than to brush it right right and because they would feel ah there'd be something right so we want to as much as possible tackle only a few things and and change those until they become more of a ritual and once mm -hmm. they become a ritual and the kind of my intuition personally about that is once it starts to feel like oh this I would miss doing this, mm. then that's the time to start adding new things in. So I mean, there's no magic formula, but in general, your approach is the approach that works because you don't see the crash and burn where people, you know, like that's the tortoise and the hare analogy. Mm. Going out of the gate super fast doesn't always win the race. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a long game, short game thing, and I do find that no matter you know, I do a lot of I. I uh, do a lot of this science communicating myself. I'm speaking a lot and in, in, in training a lot. And, I, and I, I speak specifically about this topic a lot. And I do find that it is a hard one for people to grasp because 
the, the promise of immediate reward mm -hmm. is looms so powerful. It looms so powerful um, that you have to, in some ways, outsmart you know, it's, I don't know if it's our nucleus accumbens or what part of our kind of pleasure-seeking brain is kind of wanting that instant gratification now, but, but if you can he, kind of hear that part of your brain, thank it for, for desiring the instant gratification now, and then still play the long game and push through the monotony of the kind of day-to-day -day kind of boringness of it, or even kind of pain of it sometimes, uh, by the end, by the time it does become a habit, it's pretty pleasurable. It's easy, yeah. as you said, right? It's, it's like, how could I not do this? I mean, I, again, I've been wanting to take an afternoon nap now for over a year. And until I basically said, okay, non-negotiable, mm -hmm. I have to take a nap. And, and I've got an accountability part and I text every day saying I've done my, you know, like I've put teeth in the commitment. Yep. Um, now I'm like, oh my gosh, how do people not take naps in the afternoon? You know, now it's like a no brain. Same thing with yoga in the morning. I'm like, how do people survive without doing yoga? You know, and again, obviously these are my personal experiences. I don't mean to generalize, but it does, it is surprising. You have to get through that middle part in order to come out the other end and go and look back with kind of the kind of wisdom of hindsight and go, oh, that really was the better approach all along. Yeah. Yeah. And I, like similar to you, my morning is, I would say the most um, important part of my, like a daily ritual for lack of a better way to describe it. I, I did a podcast um, yesterday, actually. And one of the things that the host mentioned that part of his morning is before he gets out of bed in that beginning waking period, once he becomes fully conscious, he always says, I love my life. That's mm -hmm. like, like, that's a non-negotiable part. And I'm like, oh, that's super cool. That's easy. And I did that today. It made me feel good. Right. So, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but part of my morning ritual, it's, it's definitely when I do my best with exercise. So most mornings, that's my immediate thing. I'll, I'll take my nootropic stack, go to the gym. And then after that, I live in San Diego. So pretty much all year I can sit outside after the gym yeah, yeah. and I'll have, that's when I'll have my coffee and you know, get my morning light and then have a decent breakfast after that. And that sets the table for the rest of the day. So one of the things, um, if we go back to sleep, one of the things with sleep is people often are trying to fix sleep when sleep's not working at night. But a lot of sleep at night is going to be dictated by what we did first thing in the day because of our body clock, right? Because if we get a good spike of cortisol then, which is what we should be having, um, and do a lot of things like the morning sunlight, getting a, like some, like a, instead of an all starchy breakfast, getting some modest amount of protein, all those things tend to make it so the ripple effect at the end of the day is we sleep better. So oftentimes people, like there's a saying in, um, there's a type of chiropractic called applied kinesiology, and they deal uh, historically a lot with pain, but the saying was where it is, it ain't. So where you're feeling the pain isn't where the problem is, mm. right? It, some other muscles may be weak. It's causing a, a different muscle to work too much. That's now causing toxic buildup that we're thinking of as inflammation and pain, but just working on that local area is not going to fix the problem. So you see mm. that with health, like people with sleep will focus inordinately on that time period right around bedtime. Mm. But the truth is there's really powerful things you could have done early in the day that might've had a bigger impact. 
Yeah, I, God, I love this idea. You know, it's, it's, it's surprising how much science matters on this stuff because it really gives us insight into where our intuition gets it wrong. Um, but, but, but exercise and getting sunlight in the morning, I, I do find as well, if I haven't had a kind of vigorous exercise, kind of, you know, whatever, if I've, if I've taken it a lot milder that day, I don't, I, I don't sleep as deeply. It's actually my deep sleep. Yep. That, that seems to get short shrift. Um, so tell us more. I know you're, you're kind of an expert on the, um, you're an expert on the, 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 the timing of, you know, biological rhythms and how those sync up with light rhythms. So yeah. talk to us about optimizing or, or thinking a, a better way to think about those and how to get. Yes. So I would, um, I would tend to use the term naturalistic light. So if we think of okay. light, um, early in the day, you'll notice like blue skies as an example, right? Lots of blue early in the day. Yeah. Sunset, you're going to see a lot more oranges, yellows, reds. So light has, as we would see in science experiments as a kid with a prism, it's a rainbow of colors. Mm. So what science has found increasingly over time is that blue light color from sunlight, but from any light source early in the day is really a great thing to boost what I think of as our arousal. Uh, wakefulness brain chemistry mm. but blue light at night is since it's arousing is the worst thing for us because it interferes mm. with melatonin which is mm. kind of our our timing hormone for darkness yeah. and so countering blue light at night so i've been i think since maybe 12 14 years ago i have these orange goggles i Do wear you? if i'm yeah. gonna watch yeah, tv yeah. at night right yeah, yeah. those orange lenses block out blue frequencies mm. Um, but what I think of as naturalistic lighting, so candles, a fireplace, those things at night would be more naturalistic. They're not going to be as stimulating. A TV monitor, a computer monitor, our smartphone, reading you know, a, a um, Kindle or something that's emitting blue light, that's going to be an alerting signal for our brain, which makes it really difficult to, one, um, get as deep in sleep, but also it subdues the amount of melatonin we create. Mm. And these hormones that have narrow windows where they spike in our blood act as timekeeping things. And I guess the way I would say it in a simple sense is they do all their job in a really narrow point in time. Mm. But if we decrease the amplitude of the wave, basically it's not as big a surge and spread it out. Now their job is bleeding into other jobs. And the result is no one's job is getting done particularly well. So what we want to do always when you think of circadian rhythms, body clock function, you want the right thing at the right time. Mm. And light just happens to be one of the, the cues that we evolved, why is it light and darkness, mm. to make sure that jobs get done at the right time. Yeah, it's interesting. Again, and I do think people... Um, uh, you know, again, I, I, when it comes to sleep, I find that people, what people will often try to do is if they're restless in their bed, for example, they'll, 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 there's like these layers of not getting quite as far as what you're suggesting, right? First, they'll try to just calm down and, and breathe, or they'll ruminate about not sleeping and, and kind of beat themselves up for it, which of course arouses and gets them more upset and makes them not sleep. Uh, pairing, and of course, pairing that state 
with the bed itself and the brain starts believing that it's supposed to be in that state when it's in the bed, which is again, you know, that kind of classical conditioning linking that the brain uh, tends to do, which trips us up, right? Um, but, 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 but most people, and then sometimes people will get out of bed if they have insomnia or something and maybe read, which is, is one of the better things to do in low light um, if you're, to leave the bed itself. But, but, but again, not many people are thinking, get out of the door in the first thing in the morning, get sun on my actual skin. Yeah, I mean, and I think the most important thing is the interaction with the eyes. And it doesn't have to be a lot. Oh, it's not like, you know, you need to go for a half hour run, just, you know, getting outside for 10 minutes. And so for me, that that's, um, I usually am closer to a half hour, 40 minutes having my coffee. But I'm, you know, always sit outside at one of the coffee shops here locally when I do it. And, um, that, you know, the other thing we obviously, we wouldn't want to have sunglasses on then or, um, and if we can't do that, then we want to sit as close by windows in the morning at work as, as our circumstances allow. We want to get essentially, uh, the more we get morning light exposure, um, the more likely like our body clock rhythm will function well over the course of the whole day, even if things might disrupt it later. That's it. So, so anyways, the beginning of the day ends up being a, a super important time. The wind down before bed, super important as well. Those are almost the transition periods and transitions in life and in our day seem to just outweigh other times in, in terms of their overall importance. Yeah. So if, if you're struggling with sleep, focus on the two transition, the getting up transition, yeah. the going to bed transition and make sure that you're and then the other thing with, you mentioned like some people wake up, it's completely normal to wake up periodically once in a, like, like for me, my, I would say um, I have always not been a person that struggles with sleep, but every once in a while I have a night that for some reason I'll be wide awake at two for no reason that, that I can you know, figure out. I didn't do anything differently yeah. and I just roll with it. I know my, like one of my core beliefs is trust my body that it'll figure it out. Like my job is to give it the best support possible. It'll do its best to do the rest. And so, you know, I'll usually check in, kind of do self-talk, you know, is there anything that you need? Was there something that I did to disrupt it? Um, if, there, if I have a lot on my mind, it's often as simple as just writing it down. It's almost like my brain wants to make sure I don't forget it. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. as soon as it's convinced, like it's not gonna be forgotten, it's like, yeah. all right, we're good. We can go back to sleep now. So yeah, I, I that, it, it, go ahead. No, finish. No, I just think that um, that idea of checking in for me over time has been super important. And every once in a while, so this is a, I don't know if this story would um, resonate with you, but um, I've never had allergies. So right after naturopathic school, I moved to Sandpoint, Idaho to work for a vitamin company up there called Thorn Research back. This was um, say 96 hmm. and um, ended up, finding at one of the thrift stores, there's this cool old Army Navy surplus sleeping bag. So I'm like, this rocks, I'm gonna use it, right? Cause it was down and I had like a really nice North Face sleeping bag, but I'm yeah. like, I'm gonna use this one, right? So yeah. this is probably mid-October, I go camping, froze all night, right? Wow. Yeah. There was pockets in it that the down wasn't spread evenly, right? Oh shoot, so, yeah, right? yeah. So, so that next morning I woke up, I had just horrible allergies. Oh, interesting. So, you know, I'm a naturopath, like, so I did, you know, herbal things, nutrients, like everything I could think of for allergies, you know, two days later, still really bad. So I'm lying down to go to bed that night. And I'm like, you know, body, I don't really know what's going on, but 
you know, some part of you might. And, you know, I want to help you do what's, you know, what you need me to do. So any insight you could give me about, you know, why you think having these allergies is important, you know, please do. And about, you know, a minute or two later, this idea pops into my head, I don't want you to be cold again. And I'm like, cool, that rocks. I don't want to be cold again. How about I don't use that sleeping bag next yeah. time I camp? And yeah. I'm like, oh, that'll work. And I literally felt like almost this line go down with the allergies just melting away. Fascinating. Right? So I, I would say that's more the, the zebra than the horses. There's a saying in medicine, when you hear hoofbeats think horses, not zebras. But I've both with patients and personally had experiences where it's almost this flash of insight when you do allow, I guess, the opportunity for that communication. And mm. not to say it's gonna solve everything, but quite often my experience has, or my experience has been almost uniformly, our body, our brain are learning and adapting and trying to do the best they know how. Quite often what they get stuck in or what they choose for a strategy wouldn't be what we would choose. Yeah. But when you think about it, the reason behind the strategy uh, like that rocks. I would want you to do that. Let's just think of a better way to, to accomplish that. I love that idea of your body as like a partnership. You're in partnership or you're in uh, your, your higher level cognitive processing, right? Our language centers, their sort of executive function, the ones that are, that we think of, we think of it as our whole brain, even though it's a very, very small part of our kind of what's going on in the system. Uh, in relationship to this kind of more visceral um, bod embodied cognition, right? Where, where our body speaks to, again, this sort of very, uh, I don't know, it's like, it's like a, I just think of it as cognitive or, or, or sort of thinking part of the brain, right? Um, and that those two can kind of have this nice, because the thinking part of the brain, it's not that it's useless, it's, it's one that makes the plans. Right. So they can think about the future, it's the one that can sort of, sort of see it all and, and analyze it better, uh, but, but it's not necessarily having that depth of embodied insight that, and so trusting, learning to trust our bodies, and I think even with supplementation, you know, as if people are experimenting with nootropics or other types of things, whether it's amount you're taking or other things, learning to trust your N of one, right? Your individual yeah. body, I think is really powerful. For sure. There, there's a, in the nootropic community, there's a acronym, your mileage may vary is it's, but it's YMMV. And um, mm. the idea is that the same nootropic compound or stack might work completely different for you, your N of one than me. And so it's super important for people to do the self-experimentation. And so you know, sometimes I'll be asked by people at a trade show, well, you know, what about this other nootropic stack? What are your thoughts? Like, did it work for you? Right? Like, I'm not going to like, um, presume to know what's going to work best for you. I want you to experiment, see how you subjectively feel even better if you can do things like the aura ring and get some objective data as well, and then use that feedback to dial in what's going to work best for you. And the second part, which to me is as important, don't get locked into just because that worked today or this month, that it's going to keep working for a year or a decade. What I saw early on in naturopathic school was this strong tendency to get what I would say attached to the, the tool, 
the, the thing so like you see it a lot with diet like i'm a paleo i'm a keto i'm a vegan right like all good things but the truth is um and i'll step back i had this um, great nutrition teacher when i was in school and one of the big things that i remember him saying was it can be a big difference between a diet that takes someone that's on a horrible diet and gets them healthy and a diet that keeps them healthy. So don't get locked into what moved you, like always be flexible and focus on where you want to stay. Like what's the focus I would say on the goal. So what I, I was a vegetarian my last year in the Navy um, and then for about another five years after that. And at one point I just found for me, it was super hard to maintain muscle mass my hands were cold a lot. There was like low level things that I just wasn't satisfied with that got better when I reintroduced some lamb and fish. So not to say that would be the, you know, something that every vegetarian should do, but although I did pretty well on it and it definitely got me from being less healthy to more healthy, it wasn't keeping me as healthy as I wanted. And so I think it's like, to me, a super important thing is to focus on the results and be flexible about the things we do to get there and stay there. So mm-hmm. I like, like you mentioned meditation yoga, I taught yoga in the nineties. One of the um, older yoga teachers I used to see at, uh, it was called Sensusi Beach in Waikiki. He used to be there at sunset a lot. And had, uh, my recollection is he had taught Kareem Abdul-Jabbar yoga back you know, in the seventies. Like he'd been, when no one did yoga, he did yoga. He was doing it, yeah. And what he said is, that every year he took two weeks off and did basically a fast from his life. He stopped doing yoga. He didn't meditate. Um, he didn't, wasn't a vegetarian. Like he basically said, Greg, this is it for me. Like I started yoga to be flexible. And if I become so inflexible, I can't give up yoga for two weeks. I've somehow lost track of what I was, you know, going about this for. So for me, that idea of, um, being flexible, not getting rigidly locked into that. Oh, I did keto. I remember feeling great on it for like a couple months. This is the diet for me for the rest of my life. Is it wouldn't be how I would approach it. I would like, great, we we got this thing that we know did this. Is it still doing this? And mm. if it's not, then time to adjust. Don't throw it out. You may still want to cycle keto back in maybe next winter. So I, I just a, am a huge fan of anything that you do more intermittently. So cycle this in, do it for a while, then kind of go on a fast for it and shift into some other thing. And what I think is just like exercise, that's going to help our brain work the best, right? It's going to force it as change is how our, our senses are designed. Do you know, um, have you ever encountered, I think it's called the Hooks Weber law. I'm not sure if I know that. So I think of it like the Yerkes Dodson law is like one of these super great mental models. So, and I might have the name wrong, but the idea, it goes back to vision. And so what we know is if, if your room was completely dark and I brought a candle in, you would notice a big difference. But if we already had a hundred candles in your room and brought one more in, not so much, right? So the quantity, the one candle wasn't what was important. It was the relative change. Mm. So the hooks Weber lies about our vision and hearing, but it's why those systems like hearing is in decibels, a log system, because it's the proportional change that matters. And what we find mm. with any sense, and you mentioned habituation earlier, that our brain is designed to habituate, mm. right? So, and also designed to discriminate based on change, because that's what matters for survival, right? So mm. if we've got 
a low level sound in the background, our nervous system will do, do its best to move that from our awareness. Mm. But if now there's a big change in noise, we'll notice that. Mm. So anyways, like for me, um, just like with Yerkes Dodson law and adaptation, I'm always thinking of this proportional change. How can I create more change, but in a healthy way? So have um, you ever talked about like hot and cold um, water applications for health on your show? Mm, no. Okay. So no. it's, it's not yet. I mean, you'll see like, um, you know, like biohackers use no. like cryotherapy, ice baths, things no. like that. No. You'll see other people use saunas, but I would be wired to just like in a, like with my morning shower routine, you know, take a hot shower, turn the hot all the way off, cold as much as it can go for 30 seconds that creates change right a big contrast mm -hmm. and do that two or three times and now in a simple small crunch down time window you're doing something that's actually very invigorating even here in san diego where we don't get super cold water you can create a lot of contrast a lot of change and it's mm -hmm. the change where the magic happens i love that but you don't have to do an incredible ice bath or super hot sauna you can do things that that produce what I would say similar types of responses by just using contrast and change. I love that. I love that. Um, we, uh, I, I, I have to come back to the empathy stack because I know listeners are so curious about that, that piece of the different cognitive dimensions. Cause again, it is intuitive. There would be attention and memory and these others. Uh, so I want to ask you about that too, as we wrap up, I want you to ask you about the, em the empathy piece of, of what you guys are working on. And then the last question I want to ask is about what you guys are doing with longevity. I know you're working on a new product. Um, so in that order, uh, sure. empathy. So um, empathy, so I mean, really, it was the latter, the uh, Eternus is the anti-aging product and it just launched um, April 16th. So that was yesterday as we're doing this live. I love and, it. Um, we talked earlier in the show about the NAD molecule and that there's a couple different ways to build it. So the, um, in complexity science, there's an idea of redundancy, right? Mm. More than one way to do something. And so we see that with making NAD, we can make it through from tryptophan an amino acid. Um, and basically that's called from scratch. We literally build that molecule from a different molecule. We can make it through the flushing niacin. That's the, called the, the price handler pathway. And we can do it from, a pathway called salvage, which is where nicotinamide riboside, niacinamide, the old niacin fills in. So we've got these three ways to make it. So when we built the anti-aging product, we wanted to support all three. Because for us, if the body's doing something with redundancy, it makes more sense to support that rather than just hitting, like hammering one of those routes really hard right. in a high dose. So when we were researching or when I was researching tryptophan, I started to come up with these studies showing um, like one of them, people that took a modest dose of tryptophan showed more altruistic behaviors. Mm. In another one, they um, selected more happy faces in this online cognitive assessment. Mm. And so that got me thinking, wow, there's, you know, that would be a nice core of an empathy stack, right? And so that started um, our pursuit to see if there's other things we can identify that would have, you know, happiness, empathy type of qualities to them. So we're um, at this point early on in the process. I've um, been putting together essentially the menu of things I think might work. And then our process after that is we'll essentially create a recipe, test it internally, 
And then if we are starting to feel like, you know, our iterations of that recipe are starting to look like, hey, we're getting consistent response, then we'll do a, a bigger batch and test it in our community. Usually we do 50 to 100 people um, that will send things out and then start to gather their feedback. So we're super early, but it's one that um, would be um, something I'd be excited to add in to augment what Qualia does. Yeah, if you, so it's funny. Next, so in in May and June, I'm working on uh, positive emotion, on increasing states of of, of happiness, and uh, and so yeah. So if you if you need any guinea pigs, I'm happy sure. to, because uh, I, I love that idea of um, you know, in some sense, I've been fascinated by this idea of, of reversing the brain's kind of built-in negativity bias, which is what psychologists call our tendency to focus on what's wrong instead of what's right mm -hmm. in our lives. And, um, uh, and, and again, I, I do find when I'm putting myself continually in those states of, of um, I, on a neurochemical level, I assume things like my oxytocin are, are a little mm -hmm. bit higher, things like um, my serotonin and maybe my endorphins and other 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 things, uh, but it's not necessarily my default. You know, um, I've got to work to get there. And so I love the idea of um, sort of helping our brains create a new default or, 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 or kind of shifting. And, and in some sense, right, as I look at my own kind of journey this year, this is what I'm trying to kind of experiment with is, can you set new defaults? Can you take yourself as a 1.0 version of you and really upgrade that to a 2.0 version of you and actually create, again, I don't think anything's really permanent because the body and mind are always in change, but, but, but at least stability, you know, or, or, or sort of uh, that you're coming from that place of happiness or, or again, connection. You know, I love, I love that it's empathy because I think a lot of the times, you know, if you go to any conference and watch the way people socialize with each other, we're all in our own heads. Mm -hmm. uh, we're worried about what they think of us. And to get out of our own heads and into relationship, uh, into the moment, I find to be a really powerful uh, idea that, of course, we're all seeking after. But again, it's sort of how do we keep nudging ourselves in that direction? Yeah, and I think... Like I often think when there's a, you know, something we're not good at, we need a couple things to get better. Like usually we need like some type of resources, you know, whether they're learning resources, um, you, you name it. We also need feedback, right? Like, so if we've got, you know, if we get better resources and we get better feedback, we'll often get improvement in performance in almost any area. And a lot of the way I think of like something like tryptophan, choline, these building blocks of neurotransmitters, is they're a resource. And quite mm -hmm. often what we find in populations, they're not getting enough of that resource. And Just so straight up the raw ingredients. The, the raw ingredient and that yeah. you don't have to do. So again, it's not more is better, but augmenting the pool, so to speak, mm -hmm. so that you'd bring what the average person gets up to a level that's going to allow better performance. And then, it, then taking the whole systems approach, so oxytocin, that would be, I, I've looked, there's not much in terms of natural compounds that's been studied for oxytocin yet. Mm. But again, my intuition would be if certain things would, if they'd been studied. So, you know, same with the serotonin system. So what, you know, 
sometimes when you're putting formulations together to some guesswork, right? You'd love more information. Mm. And sometimes that's why it becomes important to do the, like the recipe, iterating the recipe multiple times till you dial in something that produces the type of subjective and measurable response you want. Yeah. So, I think empathy, I, I don't know about you, but I've got, um, my personal experience is like empathy is almost like a muscle. Some mm. people have super developed empathy. Some people it's like, geez, did you get any of this software at all? Yeah, yeah. And, sure. and so it's, it's one of those old things. And I think people that do sales, um, empathy might not be as great a tool for them. Mm. Or like a holistic doctor, a counselor, you know, um, in romantic relationship, empathy is obviously super important. So right. oftentimes what you see with the brain is, and I guess the analogy, I, I remember, I mean, 20 years ago, and I don't remember the book it was in, but they, there was a chapter on this person that at the time was thought of as having the best memory on record. Mm. And I don't remember the details, but when I read it, there were certain things that he couldn't do that you and I would take for granted mm. because to do them requires just a little bit of forgetting. And he couldn't do that little bit. Mm. Right. So sometimes like more, more, more in one area brings some unforeseen weaknesses. So to me, what I, my personal goal is, is to have like the just right amount of stuff and to be able to dial up certain things as I need more of them. So I love it. Well, it, for those who are listening, uh, no matter what your interest is, neuro, these, the, the team at Neurohacker Collective, including Dr. Kelly, are, in my opinion, are getting it really right. Uh, I, I just think you guys have uh, the, 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 the sort of links, I think, to what you're going to, to really um, get the balance of these things right. It, again, these are complex, interconnected relationships when you're, when you're working with nootropics or any form of supplementation. Um, I, uh, I, I've had really positive experiences with qualia. Uh, it sounds like Eternus just came out. So this is about anti-aging and, and longevity and, and uh, those who are interested in that. And then the empathy is in the works, sounds like. Down the road. I think the, the roadmap, you know, and again, we wouldn't introduce a product unless we felt like it. Like one of our things is there's enough noise in the world. We don't want to add more noise. We want yeah. more signals. So unless we can... Yeah create a product that in our um, testing shows that it makes a, a difference. We wouldn't launch it, but near term, we're in the midst of um, right now, the test phase of a nootropic shot. So that one um, this week, I think yesterday we're sending it out to our, um, I think it was a 50 to 70 person test audience. And then after that, sleep is the highest priority. I've been working on that since August mm. and we're about, and, and sleep is great because because so many people now have aura rings or other things that allow you to get great data, we'll know if it works or not. Right. So like, it'll give us, we might have to make multiple variances of this formulation before we get one that we're satisfied with and it's possible we'll never get there. But if um, sleep's the next thing that we're about to move into the testing phase. And then after that um, empathy and a few other things are all competing for attention. So it will be more of a team decision, what we think would be the, the next thing to move forward. But empathy is in the, the short list of five. Love it, love it. Uh, tell us where we can find you. How, how do people find Neurohacker Collective? Sure, um, so our website is just neurohacker.com. Um, we've got uh, Facebook, I think it's, I, mean, I don't know how Facebook works, but you can link to um, 
it from our website, same with Instagram. And we do, um, especially in the social media where we constantly are doing things to connect with our community. And I would say the vast majority aren't related to by quality or by Eternus. They're like, try these, um, you know, life hacks, or mm. I do a monthly neurohacking in the news where any of the science articles I've seen that lend themselves to a, a real world application. I, you know, I'll review those. Sometimes we do a show and tell. So we had the blue blocking glasses, you know, mm. showing in our last one, cause we were covering a, st a study that had just shown um, how, like blue light at night. It was an animal study, but basically animals that they induced essentially cardiac arrest, heart attacks, um, they did much more poorly when they were exposed to dim light conditions instead of darkness. Mm. But giving uh, essentially red light instead of low level dim light essentially worked as well as the darkness. So when, we, when I see studies like that, like over the course of the month, I pull them out and then we do a, an Instagram conversation about, all right, these are, this is kind of what's new in neuroscience or life hacking, and this is what you might consider trying in your life. So our, our social media is more focused on those things. I love it. Yeah. And I've seen your blog. If you're interested in, in yeah, not just supplementation, but just kind of neurohacking or brain hacking uh, in general, what's kind of the latest in the science around this? I know you guys are producing a lot of good content. Thank you. Uh, for that as well. So thank you again, Dr. Kelly, so much for being on the show. It's been such a pleasure to have you on. And uh, I look forward to, I look forward very much to, to a continued conversation. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. Absolutely.